It is a real honor to be speaking today. I would love for you to open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 17. As Alan was speaking then, I uh, was really aware of an incredible symmetry and complementarity to the things that we were saying today. And I assume that that's because Jesus, you know, Ryan referred to the Lord Jesus as our great physician, and he's a physician to our souls. My wife is a physician, a doctor. She um, occasionally tells me about some of the conditions that she treats or has been involved in treating, uh, probably worst among which was um, perianal abscess, which sounds as bad as the words, um, a great ball of pus um, just at the top of the backside. And uh, it, it, no, I, don't, I haven't prepared PowerPoints, unfortunately. But, uh, but of course, the doctor's role in such a situation is to get in there, uh, make an incision, and then drain the thing. And nothing can prepare you for the smell as the putrid, fetid pus drains. But a good doctor wants to get in and drain the thing, but then also scrape it out completely. And um, that was the image in my mind as I was meditating in the break between these two sessions. I think the Lord is uh, wanting to do that. I think there's such a, a synergy in terms of what we're saying. Perhaps two slightly different emphases, however. And so I want to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to read from verse 5. And we are going to continue something of this soul work that was begun um, with Alan's message a few minutes ago. Let me read to you from Jeremiah 17 verse 5. Thus says the Lord... Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I am conscious that over the last couple of years, having faced suffering, that there are two kinds of suffering that we face in life. There is, on the one hand, the experience of acute suffering, which is described here um, in the eighth verse when he uses the phrase, when the heat comes. We're experiencing something of a balmy heat wave in Bournemouth at the moment, aren't we? And uh, this is beautiful. When the heat comes, an acute experience of pain in your life, something that flares up, something of a crisis moment um, that takes you by surprise and casts you off balance. It's one type of suffering. But alongside the acute sufferings of life, we also experience chronic suffering. And chronic suffering, like any chronic ailment, is prolonged suffering. And that's also spoken of here when he speaks of the year of drought in verse 8. When the heat comes and the year of drought, 
the prolonged agony that wears you down and can test your endurance uh, and test your capacity to continue and to persevere. And I think that my experience, and I know it's the experience of every leader in this room as well as those of you who are just seeking to walk faithfully with Jesus, has been that you've experienced both of those kinds of pain and suffering in the last couple of years. There have been those moments of acute, agonizing pain and frustration. There's been the broken friendships. There have been the marital issues, perhaps in your own life or the those that you pastor and take care of. There have been uh, people upset and leaving our churches, bizarre situations in our church of people with strange grievances that seem to occur out of nowhere. There have been those who have broken our hearts by abandoning the faith and walking away from Jesus. And uh, we've had our own experience of crisis and advanced movement, haven't we? All of these acute moments of pain and tensions that have really tested us. But alongside and in the background has been the chronic effects of the lockdowns that we've endured and the way that that has had a wearing effect on our congregations and on our own experience of joy in ministry. And uh, with that has come constant criticism, the relentless voices of critique, alongside the political issues that have dominated some of your churches, the breakdown of trust in leadership, which is a real phenomenon that we're observing, aren't we, in, the, in our day and age that's affecting particularly those in eldership and pastoring in churches, and a culture of accusations and recriminations and all the rest of it. I'm sure some of you saw the article in, that came out in Christianity Today a week or two back that was titled, Our Pulpits Are Full of Empty Preachers. And uh, in that article where the author very tenderly charts some of the issues that preachers are facing and pastors are facing, leaders are facing, uh, chief among them, and this actually resonated deeply with me, when, when pastors were polled and asked what is it that they're most struggling with and most affected by um, in recent years, top of the list was apathy. Not in themselves, but in the congregations that they lead. And that immediately resonated with me because Christ is worth everything. And I cannot get my head into the mind of believers who I'm seeking to pastor and to lead who don't seem to want to give their all to Jesus. And so all of this stuff that we've been struggling with, the loss of loved ones or the pains of broken relationships has had a really dire effect on our spirits, hasn't it? I was reading a couple of days ago Psalm 55 where David just wistfully imagines another situation. He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I can tell you many times that thought has crossed my mind. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I want to go where there are no people, he says. <laughs> and that has been my fantasy. I thought I should fulfill my calling, become a lumberjack or write books or something, but I just don't want to deal with people anymore. And he goes on, I think, in some poignancy a little bit later in Psalm 55. He says, it's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But he says, it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. I think that's the pastor's heartbreak, isn't it? That you feel betrayed, treachery, disloyalty, accusation, and all those kinds of things that come in. It's your sweet 
friends that have turned their backs on you at times, and that is really hard to handle. I want to ask why. Why is it that God ordains these experiences for us, and why does He allow us to walk through them? And I think the answer to that question and what comes out in this passage in Jeremiah 17 is that suffering is the great revealer. And I think this has been true, as you just think with me for a moment in the very general sense of what's happened over the last couple of years. We have had now successive generations globally that have not collectively experienced deep trauma until very recently, until 2020. And we were not prepared for it. And it seems to me, you know, you cast your mind back nearly just over 100 years when the world was uh, in the throes of that First World War where many, many people were killed and there was much suffering. And straight on the back of that came Spanish flu, which killed perhaps over 50 million people globally. But it seems to be barely a blip on the radar of history because this was in the context of people already prepared and resilient and used to suffering and pain. And therefore, when we have experienced pain collectively over the last couple of years, it's happened in the context of comfort and of ease and of prosperity for many of us. And therefore, we've not been prepared. And I think it has exposed, above all, the bankruptcy of a humanistic age, where we put our trust in man. And if that's true collectively and in the general sense, it is also true in the very personal sense that suffering has the capacity to expose what's there inside your heart that you may not have realized was there. Kathy Keller said, pull up uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. And I think when we have faced emotions like we have never faced, and the weariness and the frustrations that we've never faced, those emotions have been telling us a story about ourselves. And God ordains suffering in the life of the Christian. It's there in 1 Peter chapter 1, isn't it? The fiery trial in order to expose what's really in your heart. And I think that is what this passage speaks to in Jeremiah 17. And so here God shows us a profound contrast between two kinds of people and two reactions to and responses to the experience of pain and suffering. And I want to deal with them in turn. We're going to think firstly about the negative before we turn to the positive picture. The negative picture is here in verse 5 and 6 when he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. What is being described here is the failure of a godless life. Obviously, I think this speaks very generally to the world in which we live. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. We are living in the age of the glorification of of man, his reason, his ability, his technology, and anything that exposes the problem of that as your source of strength is, is ultimately going to be a good thing. 
But you have to remember that when God said this to Jeremiah, he was speaking to his people. And he was wanting to put his finger on the issue that can be there in the heart even of a believer. That even if you profess faith in God, your emotions can reveal a kind of functional atheism. That you feel and live and act as though there is no God. And your reactions tell that story. How would you know if this was describing you? It'd be the fruit of what Jeremiah articulates here. Like a shrub in the desert. I want to just put my finger as tenderly as I can on the three emotions or experiences that I think reveal that there is a deficit here in terms of our ability to walk with and trust in God. We can describe them like this, that it can be experienced, first of all, as a sense of isolation. That when pain afflicts you, you feel completely alone. And I suspect that many of us have felt alone over the last couple of years. We know and will say quickly that this should not be the normative experience of the Christian. You remember the 139th Psalm when David says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. He says, Even before words on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The experience of the Christian is one of knowing God's presence, even when you're trying to run away. And therefore, if we are feeling a profound sense of isolation, which is what is, I think Jeremiah, or what God is, is describing here through the words, the pen of Jeremiah, he says he's like a shrub in the desert, then it's telling you something about your soul. A sense of isolation. Along with that is a sense of exposure. Again, this is not meant to be the normative experience of the believer. Remember Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you, and my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The Christian, part of the privilege of the Christian life is knowing the protective comfort and surrounding presence of a God who loves us. But what Jeremiah is describing here is a sense of exposure, living in a parched land where you feel the wind, you feel the lack of shelter, you feel the heat of the sun. And so isolation and exposure, and alongside that, there is also the sense of emptiness that I suspect many of you are familiar with and understand and immediately resonate with. Again, this is not meant to be the normal experience of the Christian. You remember the 34th Psalm, how he describes there, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, and so on. He says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Our bellies are meant to be full with the riches of God's love and of his presence. 
But what is being described here is the sensation that you have been in an uninhabited salt land. And I think that, therefore, a passage like this one that immediately exposes something of our troubled and dysfunctional heart and soul responses to the situations that we've been in, where you've sat in and wept or been in perhaps prolonged experience of self-pity and morbidity or just morbid emotions around what you've been through, that part, part of this is a warning, obviously. Don't walk away from God because you will then experience this exposure, this isolation that is being described here. But it's not only a warning, it's also a diagnostic. That if this has been your experience, we must learn the lessons from the last couple of years. Many of you, all of us, I suspect, have had the pleasure of having swabs thrust up our noses. My wife takes an immense delight in doing it to me because I immediately start crying and there's, you know, a sneeze and all the rest of it. I, it's a deeply unpleasant experience, isn't it? But it gives you an instant read on whether you have COVID or not. And there's something about this passage that immediately gives you a reading on what's going on in your heart. It's a diagnostic. And, it, you know, I've, I feel like I'm applying the swab to your noses right now. But if you are identifying at all with these emotions and these experiences, you must pay attention to what's been going on in your heart and learn and understand the lessons of this season that we've been through. The invitation is to come home. I love the 107th Psalm where it describes some who wandered in desert wastes until they see the city of God, until they see Zion, the glow of the windows the warmth of fires in a beautiful, protective environment, and the repentance and desire to journey back into the presence of God and experience the feasting and the joy of being in Jerusalem. Whenever we are aware, look, Alan pointed out to us that there's a difference, isn't there, between woundedness and sin, and that you can't have therapy for your sin, but neither can you repent of your wounds. And if Alan was right in addressing the the reality of wounds in our life, I also want to observe that sin is ever-present. And that when you're aware of these uncontrollable emotions with the idols clinging to them, the remedy is in repentance and renewal, in homecoming. And this brings us to the beautiful positive picture which is here in the rest of this passage, the assurance of those who put their trust in God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What is God promising here, friends? It is not an immunity from the suffering and the trials and the hard times and the grief and the dangers of life. It's very obvious that the tree that's being described here is planted in the wilderness environment. It's not immunity from these things, nor is it total protection personally from the pains that afflict us all when we go through 
the kinds of experiences that we've been through over the last two years. It is absolutely right and appropriate to lament and to recognize honestly what we've been through. We're not word of faith prosperity preachers who imagine and set people's expectations up falsely as though God would preserve you from all sickness and suffering in this life. He absolutely will not. I've wept over the last year. Unbelievable pain. But what it is is the encouragement that there is grace in the midst of the suffering. And it's the promise of grace. And part of my encouragement is standing here with you today and witnessing the reality of the grace of God. You may feel like you've hung on by a thread, but you're here. You haven't blown up. You haven't walked out. You haven't given up. And I want to acknowledge and honor the goodness of Jesus that he has kept us in his grip through some hellish experiences and some bitter pain. And how do we experience this grace? Where does it come from, friends? It has to do with the unbreakable connection in the life of the son or daughter of God with the Father. That you have, like the tree here, roots that are by the stream. I was, probably 12 or so years ago, I was in Israel with my wife for an extended period of time. And we went out to the Judean desert for a trip. It's a breathtaking scene of barrenness and rock and beauty. In its own strange beauty, I'll say. But out in the desert place, we took a journey into a, a gorge or a wadi called Wadi Kelt. And as you journey round into the depths of the rocks between these two rock faces, in the dryness of the desert, there's a sight which I'll never forget. Rounding the bend, we saw in the distance what we had come to see, which was a monastery that's been there for centuries and centuries. St. George's Monastery. And it catches your eye because it's surrounded by foliage and lushness and beauty in the middle of the Judean desert. And the reason is that there's a, there's, a, there's a spring under the ground there in that wadi that allows the monks to live there in the midst of the barrenness and the heat and the dryness of the desert and to have a lushness. Not, just a week or so back, I was watching a short video around an extraordinary tree alongside the banks of the Zambezi River where that river flows all through the year in the dry as well as the wet seasons. There are trees and the majority of those trees are, go completely dry in the, in the hot seasons. And every leaf vanishes and disappears. But there is one exception. It's the apple ring acacia tree that has a 30-meter or 100-foot root that goes down into the groundwater and is able not only to survive but also to flourish in the hottest seasons. It comes into full leaf and there's fruit. 
and give sustenance to the animals that live along the banks of the river. They have the river to drink from, and they have the leaves and the fruit of this tree to consume all through the dry season. And I thought that was a perfect picture here of what God is voicing to Jeremiah, of what he wants in the life of believers. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots. This is an active thing. It's not something that just happens to you. It's not a passive experience. You send out your roots into the streams. And I think what is being described here is the experience of this beautiful connection with God himself. In the 13th verse, God is described here as the fountain of living water. It's one of Jeremiah's favorite descriptions of who God is in contrast to the idols of the nations. It's that very passage that Alan referenced when Jesus described, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's not an external source of sustenance or joy. And it's not that we don't need other things such as each other. But fundamentally... It's the reality in your life that God is enough. And there are two signs that this is true of the believer. The first that is described here is that you have emotional resilience through and in the middle of the suffering and the pain. He describes it here in the eighth verse when he says that he does not fear when the heat comes and is not anxious in the year of drought. And it seems to me that that is, in some ways, the holy grail of what it looks like to walk through pain and suffering with the dignity of knowing the wealth you have in Christ. He does not fear and is not anxious. My favorite picture of this is the image of Jesus himself. When he was in the bottom of that boat in Mark chapter 4, when the great squall was whipped up, on the Sea of Galilee, and those seasoned fishermen are terrified and fearful for their lives as water's coming into the small boat. And I don't know how it's possible, but Jesus is sleeping through the whole thing. Not just through sheer exhaustion, but because of the profound peace at the center of his soul. Resting in the sovereignty of his Father does not fear when he comes, and is not anxious in the year of drought. I think, you know, we're in the center of a city that is full of young people, and both as a kind of observation of what we see with our own eyes, but as well as what's been testified statistically, there is an epidemic of anxiety in the world in which we live. And it seems to me that it's, it's here that the Christian, the church, and especially church leaders have an opportunity to be different, to demonstrate the truth of the gospel that we believe. I feel like I'm drawing from all the same authors that uh, Alan did, but I want to quote Lloyd-Jones from the same book, in fact where he said that a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, a very poor recommendation for the gospel. He said, we are living in a pragmatic age. 
People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they are interested in results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They are frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. And he said, nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people, looking at us, the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid. And then he goes on and says, it behoves us, therefore, not only for our own sakes, but also for the sake of the kingdom of God and the glory of the Christ in whom we believe to represent him and his cause, his message, and his power in such a way that men and women, far from being antagonized, will be drawn and attracted as they observe us, whatever our circumstances or condition. What Lloyd-Jones was describing was the lushness of the tree. The believer, and especially, I think, the Christian leader, who in the midst of the year of drought has roots deep into the waters of God's goodness. And so alongside this emotional resilience, there's another sign which is true of this person. They also continue to do good and bear fruit even in the midst of suffering. And this is a surprising thing, because my observation of my own heart is that whenever I go through dark seasons or have been through dark seasons, I have wanted to turn inwards. I want to withdraw. I want to feel sorry for myself and cut myself off from opportunities to, be, to do good to others and to be a blessing to God's people. And I think it's true of all of us, isn't it? But what Jeremiah was seeing here as God spoke to him was this image of a tree that continues to bear fruit even in the midst of the heat and the drought. So that your life is supplied by the overflow of the presence of God in such a way that you are able to do good to those around you. In many ways, that is Christian leadership. A Christian leader who taps out in the midst of suffering, may not be worthy of the calling. And you remember the words that Matthew reminded us of yesterday in 2 Corinthians 4, how Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show, to demonstrate, to reveal, to manifest, to display that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And it's not that you're a strong person. You're a clay jar. But that you have access to limitless, even infinite resources in the Father's love and His goodness and His overflow. And so, friend, I want you to be honest with yourself. I know we've already engaged in some real heart work this morning. But alongside the lamenting of the wounds that have happened to us, there's also an appropriate repentance of where our confidence and trust has not been steadily set upon Jesus. And I want to remind you of some gospel truth as I bring this to a close. Jesus is the only man who ever lived whose faith did not waver in the way that is described here in Jeremiah 17. You and I are fickle and flawed people. 
Jesus is the only one who triumphed and whose faith completely triumphed through the midst of darkness. And that's liberating, isn't it? It means that you have, you will mess up and stumble and have moments of panic and fear and moments of the fantasy of quitting and giving up because you're not him. And only he has walked that road perfectly. And along with that is the reality that he's merciful and tender to us in our weakest moments. He knows that we're dust. He remembers that we're flesh. And Jesus, you know, when it describes here in Jeremiah 17 the curse of those who put their trust in man, remember that Jesus bore the curse for you upon the cross. He experienced the abandonment, the isolation, the exposure when he was naked upon the cross. He experienced that in order to fully absorb the curse of our failure, of our lack of ability to believe and provide a way for you to repent and come back to Jesus with renewed faith and courage. And I also want to remind you of this. Jesus ultimately was vindicated for his faith. That as he went through the darkness of the cross and descended into hell, he was also raised from the dead, vindicated, and ascended to the Father's right hand as proof eternal that the Lord does not abandon those who put their faith in him. My hope and my prayer for you, that where you've come into this conference with a limp, perhaps with a very real, serious contemplation of giving up, and with the emotions that have been all over the place, and the isolation, the exposure, and all that kind of stuff that could be true of you, that there will be a pause even today. I think the divine physician has been at work this morning to help bring exposure, to scrape out that abscess so that he can bring healing and he can bring strength and he can put steel on your bones you can be wolverine for Jesus <laughs> and you can do damage for the kingdom will you pray with me oh Lord Jesus there has never been a better man than you so unwavering in your devotion to your father your food was to do the will of him who sent you. You didn't give up. You walked the road that was ordained for you. I know in this room, Lord, there is grief alongside failure. We want to bring this to you, Lord, as a confession. 
We who should have joy in all seasons and circumstances have so often mirrored the godless culture and the despair of an atheistic world. I pray you will come and breathe fresh grace upon us today to bind up broken hearts. I know, Lord, that you are the one who won't put out a smoldering wick. You won't break these reeds. And Lord, I am so aware that our churches will be mightier and stronger. Lord, if these leaders stable and joyful in you. And I pray for the restoration of joy. I pray for deep piety, for renewal of our prayer lives, saturation in the spirit, confidence in the gospel, belief in your mighty sovereignty, and determination to run the race set before us. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.